This morning's scripture is Mark 5, 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore, tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Thank you, Lee. Let's pray together. Father, please instruct us now through your word. You've taught us that all scripture you have breathed out and is profitable. And this is the tool you use to build us up as Christians and as the church. And help us to understand this passage. Help us to absorb it and be changed by it. May your will be done in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So we're returning to Mark. Um, Twice a year, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the book of Mark until we complete the book of Mark, around Easter and around Christmas. And this is where we resume, Mark chapter 5. And I think we need to admit, right at the beginning, this is a bizarre, bizarre passage. I wondered what Lee was going to think when I sent her the scripture passage And I wondered what you were going to think as you heard it read. Some of you may be familiar with this passage of scripture. Uh, It's also covered in Matthew and Luke, but this is Mark's version of it. Um, It is bizarre. Demon possession is a bizarre topic. The fact, this this whole interaction between Jesus and a demon-possessed man is bizarre. And as if that wasn't bizarre enough, Jesus sends the demons into 2,000 pigs. What in the world is going on? Now, I, I want to encourage you not to dismiss it because it's bizarre. As sometimes we, you know, modern intellectual Americans can dismiss anything that has to do with the spiritual realm because we're smarter than that and it seems silly. But uh, keep in mind, 
when you really think about it, everything's bizarre. For one thing, many of our beliefs are bizarre as Christians. I mean, we believe that uh, there's a God that created everything. We believe in a virgin birth. We believe in a sinless man, a man who rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. Okay, so Christianity has some bizarre elements to it, you know, if we're honest. But all of reality is bizarre when you think about it. If God didn't create us, where did we come from? It's bizarre to think that a random collision of some kind of particle exploded and then over millions of years, that's bizarre too. Um, I remember in a philosophy class, a philosopher, you've probably heard the quote, I think, therefore I am. You've heard that? I grew up thinking that meant, you know, if I think I can be amazing, I can be amazing. I think it, therefore I am it. But that's not what that comes from. It came from a philosopher trying to figure out how can I even know if I am? Maybe all, maybe nothing's real. Maybe you all are a figment of my imagination. How can I know you're real? Well, I can't really. You could be some weird misfirings of my brain and you're not really here. Well, how can I know I'm real? Well, I'm thinking, therefore I am. That's where that came from. What a bizarre line of thought. But everything is, existence in itself is bizarre when you think about it. So I don't think it's bizarre is any reason to dismiss any ideas, especially when they come in scripture, which we have seen over and over again to be faithful and true and solid and trustworthy. So yes, it's bizarre. Doesn't make it any less true. Uh, We also should not dismiss it because it seems irrelevant to us. Um, How many of you guys during your work week had a naked, bleeding, demon-possessed man run up to you and talk to you. It's doubtful that any of you did, but that does not mean that this is irrelevant to you. This is an important passage. And what I'm going to attempt to do is actually to get our attention off of the demons and the pigs, as hard as that's going to be to do, because that is clearly the most immediately fascinating aspect of this passage. Why did he send demons into pigs? But that's not the main idea. That's not the big idea of this passage. The big idea, the point, is Jesus's authority. That's what over and over again, Mark is trying to hammer home to us, that Jesus is unlike any other man who has ever lived. And one of the things that sets him apart is how authoritative he is. So we're going to see his authority in this passage um, in three different, from three different angles. And I believe that's the main point of the passage. For one thing, um, it's a couple of things are repeated in here. That's always a clue as to what the big idea is. If you see repetition, one thing you're going to see repeated in this passage is different parties begging Jesus for something. The unclean spirits beg Jesus to be sent into the pigs. The townsfolk, the people beg Jesus to leave their region. And the man that he heals begs Jesus if he could just accompany him. Okay, they're, they're begging him. Uh, similar to the way a child would do to an adult or a parent. I mean, he is there as an authority figure. It's also significant, and I want to mention this, I don't want to just sidestep the demon issue. There's a lot of question marks when you start talking about demons. I don't want to dwell on it, but I don't want to sidestep it either. But I think we need to just ground ourselves in a couple of quick facts. Demon possessions, as you see in the Gospels, are almost exclusively contained in the gospels. You don't see a whole lot about this kind of demon possession throughout the Old Testament. 
It's not, not nearly the percentage. And you don't see a whole lot about demon possession in the epistles, you know, as the early church was getting started. It's much more prevalent in the gospels while Jesus was walking the earth than you see it anywhere else. Um, I think one reason that may be, and from testimonies that I've heard in other scriptures, it seems that demonic activity tends to be heaviest where the gospel is pioneering its way into a new realm. You hear a lot more about this kind of stuff in in mission fields where there's um, cultures who have been involved in the occult and things like that. You see a lot, hear a lot more bizarre stories of demonic activity there. And it makes sense that it would be at its height where Jesus was as he was in operation. You know, where the kingdom of heaven was at its height of operations, demonic kingdomly activity would have been at a, at a crescendo as well. So, uh, just because there was an example of this thing going on here doesn't mean that we're all going to experience this or see this. But it also doesn't mean that it's not true or that it never did happen, or that it might not still happen in some places. Um, I think demonic activity in our day is a lot more mundane. And I'll read you a passage to explain what I mean. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here it seems that we're going, we should expect to encounter people who have been in some sense captured by the devil to do his will, but they're not, they're not, uh, stark raving mad living in the tombs uh, naked and bleeding and screaming all day they're people possibly within our churches who are quarrelsome and causing trouble it's a lot more mundane but the enemy's works are still in effect so I just say all that so we we can look at the demon aspect of this plainly you know as sensible folks and not get sensational about it but also not ignore it because that tends to be the two ways that Christians go about this. They either get obsessed with the demons and afraid of them and, and give them way too much credit, or they pretend it's not there at all and pretend there are no spiritual forces that we can't see. And those are two errors. We want to be straight and narrow, okay? Y'all with me? Y'all are like, I can't believe he's droning on about demons today. It's cold outside. Well, I am, because that's what the Bible's talking about. So I want to... We're going to look at Jesus' authority from three angles in this passage. The demons beg Jesus, the people beg Jesus, and the man begs Jesus. So first, the demons beg Jesus. Look back in your Bibles or up here on the screen at the first five verses of this passage. Here's a portrait of extreme uh, demonic oppression. They, Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, they, if you remember back when we were back in Mark, they had just crossed the sea because basically Jesus was exhausted and they were trying to get away from the crowds so he could get a breath, possibly get a break. And while they were crossing the sea, there was the storm and his disciples were freaking out and he calmed the storm with a word. That is what just happened and they just landed on the other side of the sea. 
And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, like as soon as he steps out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So let's just take in this portrait of an extremely troubled, hopelessly controlled by demons man. First thing you notice is his isolation. He lived among the tombs. Okay, so just... He's isolated, he's incompatible with society, he's off by himself living among the tombs, not in a house, exposed to the elements. He's beyond help or control. Nobody could do anything for him. Nobody could help him, nobody could bind him. And the sense of it is people have tried for a long time to at least control him, if not help him. No one can bind him, could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. They even tried chains, and that didn't work. He had often been bound with shackles and chains. So they had tried. Often they had succeeded in getting him bound, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. Nobody had the strength. Nobody had the strength to subdue him. So many people must have tried. It was established. There was nothing to be done. This was a hopeless, hopeless, helpless man. Now, so picture this man in your mind, just, it wouldn't have looked like this, but just to make it easy, imagine he's living in, in our tombs in here, in the grave, uh, the grave, well, what, cemetery, in the cemetery of our church, okay? There's a man living there, everybody's tried to help him, nothing has worked, he's completely out of his mind. Uh, you see in, in the other gospels and a little bit later on, he's not clothed. He's not even dressed. He's just naked out there. He's cutting himself with rocks. So he's got sores and bleeding and he screams out day and night. Okay. So this, this is a very severe situation. Now let's pick up at verse six. And what I want you to pay attention for is the way the man under the control of the unclean spirits submits to Jesus, the way he clearly sees Jesus as authoritative. Verse six. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So this crazy, disturbing looking man who's so strong that they, all the people of that town could not contain him is sprinting toward Jesus. Now picture this man is sprinting toward you. Now, he doesn't sprint toward Jesus and attack him. It's not a, a fist fight that breaks out. Meredith and I have started watching the uh, the Bible miniseries. I think it was the History Channel that aired. It's on Netflix now. And I've been amazed at how many times that they're able to weave into that storyline like ninja fights and fist fights and sword fights. Now, I'm, some of that is probably kind of accurate, but it's filmed like an action movie. This isn't a scene in an action movie here. He doesn't come running up and do one of those flying kick things right at Jesus and Jesus blocks him. And he comes running up and falls down before him. Okay, like down on his knees before Jesus. Everybody else, I'm sure, backed away because they knew this man is insane and he's incredibly strong. Jesus probably, I mean, you can imagine, I guess he's just standing there watching this man come up, 
fell down before him. Verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now that's accurate. These unclean spirits have good theology. They recognize Jesus as Son of the Most High God. In James, he says uh, something to the effect of, uh, I should look it up, but basically there are people who believe they're saved because they know some things about God. And he says, well, the demons know things about God and they tremble. They know who this is. So they don't rush up and start insulting him or berating him. They rush up and they, they address him with the proper respect. Son of the most high God. Then they say, I adjure you by God not to torment me. Adjure there means basically swear before God you're not going to torment me. They're basically begging here, please don't torment me. So the demons who have tormented this man and through this man tormented all the people of this town are begging Jesus not to torment them. Do you guys remember the Chuck Norris facts that were going around a couple years back? Did anybody ever see those? It was these funny facts about Chuck Norris. Uh, one of them was when Chuck Norris does a push-up, uh, he's not pushing himself up, he's pushing the world down. Just funny little things about how super strong Chuck Norris is. One of them was Chuck Norris doesn't check under his bed for monsters. Monsters check under their bed for Chuck Norris. That's sort of what we have here. The demons are a terror to everyone in that town. But there's one thing that they are terrified of, and it's Jesus Christ. They beg him not to torment them. This this is not a passage that shows how scary demons are. This is a passage that shows how solid Jesus is. It's not about the demons. It's about Jesus Christ, son of the most high God. They go on to beg Jesus in verses 10 through 13. And they, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And that's important. He gave them permission. Just note that in your mind. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Crazy, crazy story. Now, in preparation for this, I knew y'all were going to wonder what's with the pigs. And so I researched and I read all the commentaries about the pigs. And I could share these theories with you, but the fact is we don't know. Jesus didn't explain himself with the pigs. The Holy Spirit didn't see fit to inspire an explanation about the pigs. One theory is that pigs were a ceremonially unclean animal. So one theory is maybe there were some Jewish herdsmen that were making money off of these unclean animals. And Jesus was like saying, hi, I got you. I demon possessed your pigs and killed 2,000 of them. But... That's pulling stuff out of thin air. We don't know what's with the pigs. And I think one reason it goes unexplained is because it's kind of unimportant. I think if we needed to know about the pigs, God would have told us what was up with the pigs. I don't think the pigs are the point. I think the point is Jesus Christ was authoritative over demons and he gave them permission. 
They wanted to go into the pigs and he allowed it. He permitted it. He was permissive toward them. And he, he said, okay, you may go. He had control over the situation. So that's what happened when the demons begged Jesus. Let's move forward at what happened when the people begged Jesus. Starting at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. They went everywhere talking about this. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. So all these people rush from the city and the countryside to see what happened. Everybody's talking about it. They all know about this man from the tombs. You know, they've told their children, don't go near the tombs. The naked, screaming, bloody guys there, don't go near the tombs. They all know who he is. They come rushing up and they see him just sitting there. And he's clothed. And he looks like he's in his right mind. Now, did you notice their response to all this at the end of verse 15? First, they weren't mad because of their pigs. They weren't getting, you know, legal support to sue Jesus because of loss of their business. And they weren't happy for the formerly demon-possessed guy who now seemed to be in his right mind. They were afraid. They were terrified. The word translated afraid there is the word that we get phobia from. You know, from this point on, anytime they probably saw anybody get out of a boat over there, they probably all dropped to their knees in the fetal position and had a panic attack. This was deeply disturbing to them. They were afraid. They had never encountered power and authority like they saw in Jesus Christ and what he did for this man. It would have seemed impossible that this man would have on clothes and be sitting in his right mind. And yet there he was. Now, I want to take a brief sidebar and just point out, I think we forget how fearsome our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ really is. I think we tend to mistake his meekness for weakness. You know, the reason he was killed was not because he wasn't powerful enough to stop it, but because he set his power aside and allowed himself to be captured and killed for us. But he was not weak. He was meek. Meek is power under control. Jesus is incredibly powerful. I think we tend to think of him either as a cute and cuddly baby Jesus or as a bloodied and battered Jesus on the cross. But he's neither of those right now. He's the resurrected King Jesus, clothed in immense power and immense authority. He's not ever to be pitied. He's to be worshipped. That is the only way to approach Jesus. He is fearsome. He is powerful. He is authoritative. He's to be worshipped. Now let's look at when the people begged Jesus, verses 16 and 17. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So here they come to him, similarly to the demons, and they're begging him, beseeching him, pleading with him, please just leave. We are terrified. We do not want you here anymore. We want you gone from here. And then we see in verse 18 that he, 
he did. He did what they wanted. They begged him to go and he went. This, verse 18 starts with, as he was getting into the boat. So he got back up in the boat to leave. So he permitted the demons to do what they wanted and he permitted the people to get what they wanted. Now let's look at what happens when the man begs Jesus, the healed man. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Begged him that he might be with him. So now contrast this man's plea with the people of the town's plea. They're both begging Jesus. The people of the town want him to get away. This man wants to be with Jesus. This is the basic contrast. These are the basic two responses to Jesus Christ among humanity. Either embrace or rejection. Now, and I see these two things as a pastor. You know, sometimes I feel like I am a shepherd facilitating people who want to be near Jesus. I'm just helping people to get near to Jesus because they want to be near to Jesus. Other times I feel like a salesman trying to pitch Jesus to people who don't want anything to do with them. And it's not the same thing. Even though many of our churches there are mixed with people who are there for other reasons, but really have no interest in Jesus Christ. And if you get into a conversation with them about Jesus Christ, they get more and more uncomfortable. The more you talk about Jesus and they really just want that conversation to be over. But then you have others who are just overflowing with love for Jesus Christ. They could talk about him all day, what he's been doing in their lives. I think it's a good place to just pause and assess our own hearts. Do we want to move away from Jesus or toward Jesus? Because no desire to move toward Jesus is a major red flag that we have not experienced his saving work in our hearts. But that's still not the big idea. The big idea is in verse 19. Verse 18, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. And he did not permit him. He did not permit him. But said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the demons begged Jesus, let us go into the pigs. And he says, okay. The townsfolk begged Jesus, get out of here. And he says, okay. The one man in this situation who has been changed by Jesus and wants to follow Jesus says, let me go with you guys. And he says, no. No. Permission for demons, permission for townsfolk who are rejecting him, not permission for his follower, direction for his follower. I think this is the most important thing in this passage. Jesus is permissive with those that don't belong to him. He's much less permissive with those who do belong to him. Those who do belong to him receive direction, not always permission. You know, similar to me and children of the church, I'm way more permissive with the kids of the church that are not mine if I see them doing things that I wouldn't allow my kids to do, I don't always step in. They're not my kids, you know. I don't I just go around spanking 
people's kids, you know. So I, I let the other children get away with things I do not let my children get away with. You know, at the chili cook-off, I poked my head into the, um, the preschool room. Chaos in there. Kids throwing stuff. And, uh, you know, I try to quiet things down, but I look at my kids differently and they look at me and they know we are not permitted to do some of these things. If Jesus is permissive toward you rather than directing you, that too is a major red flag. I think this ought to reframe the whole way we think about our relationship with Jesus in prayer. I think many of us get frustrated with prayer. It's so frustrated. You know, we have something that we want. It seems like it should be good. And we pray and we pray and we pray and we don't get it. Why won't he give us permission? Well, perhaps he's not wanting to give you permission, but direction. You know, this man's plea was a good one. Let me go with you guys. There's nothing wrong with that request. Yet Jesus said, no, I have something different for you. And so just as he command, had command and authority over the demons, just as he has, had command and authority over the people of that town, they couldn't get rid of him unless he chose to go. He has command and authority over his people to be their Lord and to direct them. You know, Christianity and prayer is not about our will being accomplished through God. It's about his will being accomplished through us. So when we go to God in prayer, we need to be thinking in terms of direction, not permission. We need to be going knowing that he has a will that needs to be worked out in our lives, that trumps our will for our lives. I think many of us operate like spiritual entrepreneurs. I've worked with a couple of entrepreneurs as their first hire. And both of these men, uh, previously they had worked for a large company. And then they went from the large company to be their own man, you know, their own boss. And there's exhilarating freedom that comes with that. But there's also crushing pressure and demands that come with that. And sometimes, you know, working with them, I'd see them think back to the days when all they had to do was go in at eight and do what they were told and then go home at five or six and then they could be with their families. They weren't having to constantly be thinking about the business and carrying that weight. I think many of us think spiritually that we're our own boss, that it's about our will. It's about our efforts. It's about what we want, about what we need to do, our decisions. But we're not our own boss. Jesus is our boss. We're more like the worker who who just gets to go to work and do what we're told. We receive the commands. We don't give the commands. You know, sometimes we go to God in prayer and we just want that job or that spouse. And he says, no, I want you to do this instead. I want you to go home to your friends. We want release from this difficult situation or relationship. And he says, no. I want you to go through that trial so I can mold you into who I need you to be so you can minister for me. We want life free of tragedy and pain. And he says, no, I'll give you enough grace and mercy to get you through it because I have something I need for you to do. I 
And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which is these 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And I'd like for us to close our time prayerfully um, And I want to encourage you to think about your relationship with Jesus Christ. My number one priority is to do everything in my power to present each and every one of you and my family to God as pure and holy and blameless through Jesus Christ. I don't want to just marshal a, uh, a bunch of church folks to do a bunch of church stuff. I really want you to know Jesus and to trust him, to be forgiven by him. These are two really good questions to examine ourselves in our relationship with Jesus Christ. The first one, do you have a desire to move away from him or toward him? If your desire is to move away from him, you probably are not a Christian. If your desire is to move toward him, you probably are. And secondly, Do you feel as though God permits you to do what you want? Or do you feel as though God directs you sometimes to do things that you don't want? You know, the Bible teaches that God disciplines his children. You know, being God's child is accepting his fatherhood in your life. And he's a very active and involved father. He doesn't just let his kids run around and do what they want. He raises his children. He teaches them. He directs them. Sometimes he changes their path. Sometimes he has to discipline them. If we feel free to do whatever we want and our, we never feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit of our, over our sin, if we're able to go on sinning without changing, if we're able to make decisions without concern for what God's word says and what his will is, it's a really, really serious sign that we're probably not Christians. Now, on the other hand, If we find ourselves often redirected by God, if we enter into sin and find the conviction of the Holy Spirit is too great and we have to confess and repent and change, or if we're making decisions and we take it before the Lord in prayer and it's not what we first wanted but something different, that's a really good sign that we probably are Christians. But Jesus is real and his authority is real. And we ought not pretend that we know him if we don't know his lordship in our lives. So I'd like for us to pray now, and I want us to go to the Lord. I want us to go to him as the son of the most high God, reverently. You can go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. And as you do, some among us need to face seriously our standing before the Lord Jesus Christ and be honest with ourselves. And I invite you, if that is where you're at, I want to invite you into the rest of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to receive the gift of salvation. I want to invite you to be renewed, recreated, revived by God through Jesus Christ. I don't invite you to feel condemned or feel bad about yourself. I just want you to go to Christ and be saved.
some among us have been wrestling with God in prayer over this or that. And what we really want, if we're honest, is for him to do our will. And we need to just relent to his lordship and accept his direction for our lives and stop trying to demand permission to do something he doesn't want us to do. We need to remember that Jesus is good and he loves us. And he knows better than we do what's best. May we all walk out of here trusting in him, obeying him, freed from sin, freed from all the things that oppress us. Father, your spirit is the only thing powerful enough to bring about these things. Lord, may no one in this room walk out of here under any delusions about their relationship with you. Please make clear to each and every one of us where we stand. Lord, help us to be submissive to your direction like the man that you healed who had those demons. Help us to go from here following your directions, trusting in you, telling others about the wonderful things you've done for us and your mercy toward us. Please help us each and every one to discern what the next step is in response to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.